In the scripture that we study today, Jesus makes it clear he wants us to be careful with our words, to be careful in how we talk to others. He wants us to be people of integrity, people who are known for keeping our word and fulfilling our vows. He wants our speech to be like an Amish rocking chair, something simple, sturdy, durable, something solid and trustworthy. In other words, he wants us to be people who speak with such clarity and honesty, other people never have to doubt or wonder or be suspicious of anything we say. And this lesson that Jesus gives about being honest and truthful, this is something that has always been important to him. So I want to give you two examples, one from the Old Testament and then one from the New, and then we'll jump into our text. Do you remember that famous wrestling match that went on between Jacob and God that you read about in Genesis chapter 32? I know we've talked about this many times before, but this really illustrates this point. Anyway, what's, what's fascinating about this is that at first, Jacob does not recognize his opponent. I mean, all the Bible says there in verse 24 is, and a man wrestled with him. So Jacob's thinking to himself, hey, I've been to battles like this before, and I've always found a way to win. I'm going to do it again. I mean, I spent my whole life fighting, fighting Esau, fighting Laban. I've had to fight for everything I've got, and I've always found a way to come out on top. I'm sure I'm going to do it again. He's a man of great pride. But on this night, he's going to lose that pride because this battle's different. You see, as J Jacob and the stranger fight, the struggle goes on all night long. And Jacob begins to notice that the stranger never gets tired. He thinks, man, what is it with this guy? I've never had an opponent like this before. And then just before dawn, this, this stranger, he reaches out and just kind of taps him on the side. And with that simple touch, he dislocates his hip. I mean, he cripples him. He permanently cripples him. And instantly, Jacob realizes, oh, he could have done a whole lot more than that. This is no mere man that I'm wrestling with. I'm wrestling with God. And suddenly with his injury, realizing that all his strength is gone, man, he begins to cling to God. He holds on with everything he's got. Because he realizes it's the only way he can survive. The only way he's going to be able to prevail in this situation is to stay close to God and pray. Well, that's something that's kind of new for Jacob. See, his whole life long, whenever he found himself between a rock and a hard place, I'll figure a way to get out of this. I'll use my wits, my charm. That's not going to work here. Always before, when he found himself facing some kind of opponent that had more muscle or more manpower, yet Jacob would think to himself, yeah, but... They don't have the cunning or the cleverness that I do. And eventually, I'm going to find a way to outsmart them. But that's not going to work here. Jacob knows he is no match for God. I mean, fighting against God, you're not going to win. So now instead of fighting against him, which he's been doing his whole life long, now all of a sudden, Jacob begins to cling to him. I mean, he's holding on for dear life. And he prays, God, I'm not letting go. I will not let go unless you bless me. Now, here's where the account gets really fascinating. How does God respond? Well, he responds, I think, in an unusual way. He asks him a question. What's your name? And we're thinking, man, that's odd. That's really odd. Why would God ask that? I mean, he's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows who Jacob is. And there's the point. It's because he knows who Jacob is, because he knows what this man is like. That's why he's asking this question. Hey, Jacob, it's time for you to fess up. It's time for you to admit who you really are because it's time for you to make a change. See, this is not the first time Jacob's been asked the same question. What's your name? Last time he got asked that question, he wasn't honest with his answer because he was trying to steal a blessing away from his brother Esau. The last time he got asked that question, he was asked that question by his earthly father, Isaac. What's your name? And on that occasion, Jacob lied because he was trying to take something that did not belong to him. 
So now here, many years later, here's his heavenly father, God, asking the question, what's your name? And now Jacob gets it. He knows what God's saying. Jacob, I'm not going to bless you unless you get honest with me, unless you speak the truth. And so Jacob swallows his pride and he says, my name is Jacob. Man, is that hard for him to say. It's hard to get those words out because he knows what this name means. He knows what it represents. His name, Jacob, it tells a story, a story about him. He spent his whole life being dishonest with others, deceiving others. He spent his whole life cheating and taking advantage of others. But now that he's finally owned up to that and admitted that, now God can respond. Okay, you've spoken the truth. You've been a double dealer, a backstabber for far too long. But now, Jacob, now that you've acknowledged that, now I can change you. And so it's on this very night that God changes his name, changes his name from Jacob to Israel. And that new name, Israel, it means one who prevails. But notice, how does he prevail? He prevails not with lies and deceit. He prevails not by tricking others and taking advantage of them. Now he prevails with prayer. He he prevails by leaning on God, by staying close to him. Now here's the lesson. It was only when Jacob spoke the truth that God was able to bless his life. It was only when he spoke the truth that God was able to transform him and make him into a new man. Now you come over to the New Testament and you meet a man by the name of Nathaniel. And you remember the first words that came out of his mouth when he first heard about Jesus? He's got this friend by the name of Philip and Philip's all excited. Hey, Nathaniel, I I think we found him. I think we found the one, the Messiah. You know, the one Moses wrote about, the one the prophets talked about. I think we found him. His name is Jesus. And yeah, yeah, Nathaniel, I know there's a lot of guys here in Israel have that name Jesus, but I'm talking about the Jesus that came out of Nazareth. And instantly, Nathaniel's shocked. Nazareth, are you kidding me? Nazareth, can anything good come out of that kind of place? I mean, you talk about a negative remark. I mean, right off the bat, Nathaniel makes it clear, oh, he can't be the one. I got my doubts that this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, that he can be the one that he claims to be. And how does Jesus respond to this? You remember what Jesus said when he first saw Nathanael? Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile, meaning there's nothing deceitful. This guy's real. He doesn't put on a front. Yeah, he's got some reservations about me, but you know what? That's okay. At least he's honest. And because he's honest, I can work with that. This is why Jesus would get so frustrated trying to work with the Pharisees, because they were rarely honest with him. They'd rarely open up and tell him what they really thought and how they really felt. They were artificial, unreal. And that's why Jesus would often refer to them as hypocrites. And it was that hypocrisy that kept Jesus from being able to connect. It kept him from being able to reach their hearts. He wasn't able to bless their lives. Think of it like this. Think of the process that a woman goes through when she becomes pregnant. There's this new life inside of her. And that new life is a gift from God. There's a child here. And that child's going to grow. And that child's going to grow at their their own pace, in their own way. So in one sense, there's a lot which this woman now has no control over. And yet, on the other hand, there's a lot that this woman can do to cooperate with that child, to give this child the best opportunity to grow and reach their fullest potential. And how does that happen? She begins to practice certain habits. I mean, eating well, getting plenty of rest, making sure she avoids anything that would be harmful to the new life within her, not drinking alcohol, not taking drugs. In other words, because of what she chooses to do and because of what she chooses not to do, she provides a certain kind of environment, a healthy environment there in the womb, so now that child has the best chance to grow and become strong. Well, so it is in our life with Jesus. When we enter into a life with him, what, what are we doing? We invite Jesus to make his home here. This heart now belongs to him. 
And he's the one. He's the one that's going to change and transform our lives. Much of what happens in this new relationship with the Lord, it happens because of him as he works from the inside out. But on the other hand, there's a lot we can do as Christians to cooperate with Jesus. Now that he resides here, there's a lot because of what we choose to do and what we choose not to do to make this a great environment for Jesus. Now that he lives here, we want to make this the kind of place where he's really free to work. He's really free to have his way in our lives. That's why we attend church and read our Bibles and say our prayers and develop Christian friendships. And that's why we do like Jesus teaches here in Matthew chapter 5. We speak the truth. We learn to be honest with others. We put away all lies and deceit. We stop pretending to be something we're not so that Jesus is free to have the real me and free to have the real you. And from that kind of a base, he can develop a new lie. So you see this teaching that Jesus is giving about being true and trustworthy with your speech? This is a critical part of what it means to follow him, a critical part of what it means for us to really be one of his disciples. So let's take a look at the text and see what he says. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Jesus said, again, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath. When you make an oath, it's important you keep it. So fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. But the lesson that Jesus wants to teach is this. Don't just be, become serious about your speech when you're making a vow. You should be careful with your words in your everyday life, in your everyday ordinary conversations. You should always be careful. So, verse 34, Jesus says, I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. See, in his day and time, people were just careless with the words, reckless with the promises they made. You're never sure when you could trust them or not. Are they really going to follow through on this? They were just making a mockery. I mean, a promise just didn't mean anything anymore. That's why he's saying these words. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair one hair, white or black. Now we know with chemicals today, you can change the color of your hair. Jesus is talking about the natural color of your hair. Something God creates, something God controls. So he comes down to verse 37. He says, here's the lesson. When you're going to talk, just keep it simple. If you need to say something, then just simply say yes. And when you say yes, mean yes. And when you say no, mean no. Anything beyond that, if you have to keep adding a bunch of extra words to get uh, people to understand, or if you have to keep adding bunches of promises, and oh, oh, I swear, I promise, in order to get other people to believe you, you're playing the devil's game. You've lost your integrity. You know, it's really easy to read a, a paragraph like this and come away with the wrong impression. A lot of people think, because of what Jesus said here, that we should never stand up in a court of law and put our hand in the Bible and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That because of what Jesus taught here, it's wrong for a Christian to take an oath like that. If that's your impression, you've got the wrong impression. Because later on in the book of Matthew, Jesus will do that very thing. He'll be put under oath. He's in a trial. And he speaks. He's not afraid to respond. He gives a testimony. We see the Apostle Paul doing the same thing several times, too. He takes an oath. In fact, he turned to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. And the Bible says that God confirmed his promises to Israel with an oath. And he does the same thing for us, too. What bothers Jesus here is not that we're taking an oath. What bothers Jesus is when we use that oath or we use that promise to deceive others, to put one over on them. Think of it like this. Think of a wedding. Think of the bride and the groom as they stand in front of all their friends and family and they make vows. I solemnly swear in the presence of God and the presence of all these witnesses to love, honor, and cherish till death do us part. 
What's happening when they make those vows? Are they making those promises because they're so suspicious of each other? Hey, I'm not sure I can trust you. Make sure you're not lying to me. I want you to swear in front of all these people and know this. I'm going to hold you to it and so is everybody else. Is that what's happening at a wedding? No, it's the very opposite. Because the bride and the groom love each other so much, because they appreciate each other so deeply, now they want to make a commitment to each other, a commitment that's going to stand out and be set apart from any other commitment they've ever made in their entire life. They want these promises that they make to each other to be something special and unique. So they invite all their friends and they invite all their loved ones to come to the wedding and to witness to see how precious, how important, how significant this commitment is that they're making to each other. So it is when a Christian stands up to be a witness in a court of, court of law. Because the judge, the jury, so many people in the courtroom, they don't know who you are. They've never met you before. They don't know a thing about your character. They don't know if you're honest or not. That's why it's so important in a setting like that that you stand up and be willing to take an oath. Hey, I don't take this moment lightly. This is important to me. I take responsibility for what I'm about to say. I am willing to put myself under the penalty of perjury if I say anything wrong or inaccurate. I intend to be truthful in everything I share. You see, it's because we care about the truth we take that on. But here, Matthew chapter 5, here we have a setting where people are using the words, using the promises, instead of underlining the truth to emphasize and highlight the truth and how important it is, they're using their words and the promises to undermine to sabotage the truth. <laughs> you ever have this happen to you as a kid? A friend makes a promise, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. I'm going to do it. You think, oh, wow, they're serious. I can trust them. And yet by the next day, they've already broken the word and you call them on it. Hey, you lied to me. And they say, oh, I didn't lie. Because when I made that oath, I had my fingers crossed behind my back. So the oath didn't count. They tricked you. Well, they were using those same kind of tricks in the first century. Yeah, I took an oath, but I didn't swear by God's name. I swore by heaven. But I didn't use the name of God, so that means that oath doesn't count as much. And you can't hold me accountable. And because people were playing tricks like that constantly, you didn't know when you could trust them or not. Because their words had no integrity. Do ours? You know, one evening you're sitting in the study and you're working on a project and your six-year-old daughter comes into the room and says, Daddy, would you come tuck me into bed? Sure, honey. Just a minute. Just a minute. Well, that minute turns into 10 minutes, and 10 minutes turns into 20 minutes, and 25 minutes later, you're so wrapped up in your work, you forget all about that promise you made to your daughter, and you never show up. And because little things like that happen so many different times in so many different ways, after a while, your children begin to get leery of you. Does dad really mean what he says? I mean, when he says yes, does he really mean yes? So here's what happens the following week. As a father, you say, hey, kids, you help me with the yard work today. I'll, I'll take you out for ice, ice cream on Saturday. And immediately, how do the kids respond? Do you promise? Do you promise? Why did they have to ask that question? Why did they need that guarantee? Because too many times in the past, dad made a promise and he didn't follow through. His words had no integrity. When's the last time you saw this? You saw this happen. Somebody show up late for a meeting and they said, I'm sorry. It's all because of me. I just didn't plan my day well. I, I, I made some poor choices today. It's entirely my fault. I should not have kept you waiting. Please forgive me. You know, no, hey, I got stuck in traffic, or my alarm didn't go off, or I just couldn't help it. No, no spin, no stories, no hiding behind a bunch of excuses, just honest through and through. Don't you find yourself being drawn to people like that? Isn't it refreshing when somebody speaks the truth? Tim Elmore tells about his daughter, Bethany. When she was three years old, uh, she learned how to make microwave popcorn. And the reason why she did that was because she knew that was her daddy's favorite snack. 
So one night when Tim came home from work, there was Bethany meeting him at the door. Big bag of popcorn in her hand said, Daddy, I'm ready. I mean, she had everything set up that night so the two of them could sit down and just enjoy a wonderful evening together. So they each grabbed a bowl and they sat down on the sofa and they turned on the TV and they started munching away. And it was great. Well, a few minutes later, Tim leans over and says, Bethany, I didn't know you liked popcorn so much. And Bethany says, well, I, I really don't. But I'm learning to like it more and more. Well, Bethany, why make yourself eat something you really don't care for? And Bethany said, because, Daddy, you like popcorn. And because you like popcorn, I want to learn to like it, too. Isn't that exactly what ought to happen in our friendship with Jesus? As we spend time with him, we discover what he's like. We begin to discover what he cares about. And because he cares about it, we begin to care about it, too. Well, here's one of the things that Jesus cares about, our speech, how we talk to others. He wants us to be people who are known for keeping our word and following through in our promises. He wants us to be known to be people who speak with such clarity and such honesty. No one ever has to wonder or doubt or be suspicious of anything we say. He wants us to be true and trustworthy. Because when we live like that, when we act like that, when we speak like that, we let others see the image of God in us. See, we care about the truth because he cares about the truth.